Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. On Sunday night, we learnt the results of the European Parliament election, in which voters in the 28 member states of the European Union elected 751 MEPs, members of the European Parliament. Five years ago, the unexpected success of three national populist parties in the European election, the Front National in France, the Danish People's Party and the United Kingdom Independence Party, heralded the beginning of the populist surge that has transformed European politics. Were there any comparable earthquakes this time round? I sat down to discuss the results with Eric Kaufman, a Quillette contributor and a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, and Sunda Katwala, the director of British Future, a non-partisan think tank that focuses on the issues of identity, immigration and integration. So, Sundar and Eric, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I guess before we get started on reading the tea leaves, um, we should make it clear that um, the European elections are not hugely significant politically. The European Parliament has very little power. Turnout, though slightly higher this year, is historically quite low in European elections. Uh, and often results in European elections aren't repeated in national elections. So UKIP came first in the United Kingdom in 2014, but the Conservatives still went on to win a majority at the general election in 2015. But having said that, having told everyone how unimportant <laughs> the elections were about to analyse are, Eric, uh, you've written about um, the popular surge in these elections in Quillette. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, I think the European elections are quite important. As you say, they... they you know, Europe only spends about two or three percent of the GDP of the continent, so it's less. There's less at stake, but uh, they often serve as a useful bellwether. They often do influence national politics, and so, for example, the rise of the Brexit Party in this election is influencing the Conservative Party here. Um, so they are important, as it also as an index to public opinion. What we see, certainly with regard to the rise of populism, is that the first major recent breakthrough, what we call the populist moment, occurs with the 2014 European elections where uh, the Danish People's Party, the French Front National and the UK Independence Party both, they all nearly achieved 30% of the popular vote, or certainly in the upper 20s. Um, was that considered a, a watershed moment? Was that really the beginning of the populist That's the beginning surge? of the current populist surge. Now, it is worth going back to uh, the late 1990s. If we want to talk about the advent of the current era, this was when the Austrian Freedom Party uh, got 27% of the vote under York Haider, and uh, the Front National under Jean-Marie Le Pen got 18% of the vote, which brought you know, well over a million protesters onto the streets. Uh, when the Freedom Party won, this was seen as a shock to Europe. The, the newspapers were, were in disbelief. Um, when the Freedom Party decided to go into coalition with the mainstream centre-right party, 
they were essentially blocked by the EU. They, the EU threatened to sanction them, didn't recognize this government for seven years. So this was a huge shock to the system. And the point, uh, which is made by Matthew Goodwin, amongst others, is that um, we, have now, we are now in a position where when a populist right party gets 30, 40% of the vote in Austria, um, that's seen as a success and people aren't really shocked anymore. And that, that tells us a lot about the state of commentary that we kind of become immune or normalized to the strength of right-wing populism now. It's worth saying that if we just take the more recent period, say from since 2014, since that surge, um, in 2015, populist right polling, particularly in Western Europe, uh, reached a peak uh, where the Sweden Democrats, for example, which had not really been on the scene at all prior to 2014, uh, almost reached 25% in the polls. The AFD emerged as an anti-immigration party in 2015 under Frauke Petri's leadership. Uh, we've seen more recently Vox in Spain, which is one of the countries people said would never have a populist right party now, has one. So there have been a whole series of new developments. But I'd say the peak was 2015, again, under the impetus of this large-scale migration crisis. So migration really is at the center of explaining this rise of the populist right. Since that peak, we've seen a subsiding of migration to Europe. And with that, uh, immigration as an issue has become somewhat less salient. Uh, it's still one of the top issues for European voters, but somewhat less. As a result of that, um, populist right support in Western Europe has subsided somewhat as well. And that's sort of well documented in the piece I wrote for Quillette, drawing on work by Andrew Geddes and James Dennison at the European Inst University Institute. And they show that in nine out of 10 West European countries between 2005 and 2016, this rise in migration, this rise in the salience of immigration predicts a rise in populist right support, but that post that 2015-16 peak, we're starting to see a slight decline, which is why in these elections, the populist right did well. So they increased over 2014 from 30 to 57 seats, um, but they didn't get the 70 seats that some people were projecting. And so that, I would argue, is partly because of the subsiding of migration and that has sort of taken some of the wind out of their sails. However, it's also worth saying that that doesn't mean the populist right is in some way a spent force. It's got a broader base of support across a wider range of countries now than in 2014 when Germany didn't really have the AFD. Uh, the Sweden Democrats weren't quite the force they are now. So a very important force, and it's also shaped the policy discussion. Uh, another factor here is the fact that the populist right has pushed the mainstream center right, and in some cases, as in Denmark, the center-left parties to adopt much tighter immigration policies. Europe, of course, has arranged deals with Turkey and Libya to try and keep migration offshore. All of these moves um, reflect the influence of the populist right in shaping the policy agenda. So even though their numbers are lower, this partly reflects the fact that the mainstream has taken on board their agenda, uh, taking some of the real estate away from the populist right. My sense from listening to a lot of the pundits and reading the commentary is that lots of liberal commentators are grasping for a decline in support for populist parties across Europe, but the numbers aren't really there for that to be the story of these elections. The big story of these elections, Sunder, is the somewhat unexpected rise of Green parties. Uh, so the Greens did better than expected in the United Kingdom, they did better than expected in Germany. Um, across Europe, uh, there seems to be a surge of support for environmentalist parties. What's your reading of that? 
I think we're I think we're seeing a, a range of trends where, in a way, the populist rise and the challenges to it creates a sort of cosmopolitan green rise in response. It's worth recalling it's, a, it's an unusual thing to have a conversation about what the European elections mean across Europe. We're doing it this time. We might have done it a bit last time. That was always the whole the dream, actually, of the Federalists. People like <laughs> David Marquand, pro-European Labour MP, were writing down and saying, if we elect a parliament for Europe, we will have a European people and a European democracy and we will have a legitimate project. And it didn't, it didn't happen for sort of 20 or 30 years. And in a way, it's the populists that have given us uh, a European conversation about European elections. And I, th I think there's more of that this time around because of the world of Brexit and Brexit and Trump. I think, I think the rise in turnout, which is as well as the mobilisation of Green and sometimes Liberal parties, is, 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 about, is about Brexit um, and about responses to Brexit, responses to populism. But these are, that's still a, a minority conversation. I think MEPs are very interested in that. You know, uh, they would love it if people were interested in their Spitzenkandidat. And, and, you know, in the <laughs> Netherlands, they, they very much knew who the candidate was because he was Dutch. But no, and that, and that changed the result. But, but it's still, this conversation is going on when most people are doing what they always do, which is have, have a national election cast a protest vote, cast a loyal vote, do what you want. But, but they are more linked now because, because the politics is moving together. Because I think in all of these countries, you've got a similar sense that the sort of the graduates who, who feel that they want diversity, they want, uh, you know, migration to be defended, the, the people at the other end of the spectrum, they exist in all these countries, but we're having it in our national context. So if you're in Austria or the Netherlands, you've had this debate about populism for a long time and you've got used to it, you've responded to it in certain ways, it comes back in other ways. If you're in Germany, I think it's been a really big shock to the German political class that Germany too will have populism. I think Germany probably has weaker populism in the AFD than in a lot of other countries. East and West Germany is certainly rather different. But having any populism at all in the German Federal Republic is actually a different kind of challenge to having populism in French politics, I think, or British politics. One of the trends in 2014, uh, and to a certain extent national elections across Europe and in America, has been the desertion of centre-left parties by white working-class voters as they have been more attracted to national populist parties. Um, and the centre-left parties, for the most part, um, uh, were left with a cosmopolitan, urban, multicultural uh, coalition uh, mainly based within cities and university towns. They now seem to be losing that support. I mean, one of the interesting things about this latest election is that you've seen the migration of the uh, anywheres from centre-left parties to green parties. What seems to be happening in Denmark and Sweden is that the social democratic parties and centrist parties, by clamping down on immigration, have been able to win back some of their traditional working class base. But it doesn't seem to be evident, the resurgence of those bodies doesn't seem to be evidence that they are um, hanging on to those cosmopolitan anywhere voters who generally seem to be drifting away from centre-left parties and centre parties across Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the big question. It's really going to be which is the stronger force. So if you are a social democratic party, uh, if you play to your white working class, more conser socially conservative voter, uh, you're going to lose perhaps some of those cosmopolitan liberal voters. The question is which is the larger force, right? So if you're the Social Democrats and you're thinking strategically, 
um, where are you going to tack, right? And, and I think the Social Democrats in, in Denmark seem to have been quite successful moving uh, to take on the concerns of the uh, cultural conservative white working class. And, and I think in Norway, similarly, and as you say, in, in Sweden. So this seems to be a kind of a, a pattern that's emerging in the Nordic countries. Um, you also have in Germany now a, a, a more, uh, well, you, you've got rhetoric on, on some parts of the left that there is a new party that sort of is talking about tightening up immigration. So I think that, that is going to be a direction that will be explored by some parties, whereas in other cases, Perhaps in the UK with the Labour Party, there is going to be this, this tendency towards the more cosmopolitan liberal end. It's just not clear this green surge or this liberal surge. I mean, there was a green surge in the late 80s, for example. So we don't know if this is purely about environmentalism or if it does involve some of that cosmopolitanism. Because if it does, then we are into a kind of a, a polarization situation where if the liberal and green parties, which have done well in this election, are a reaction to the rise of the populist right, we could then be heading towards that recursive kind of deepening polarization with the, the center being hollowed out effectively over time. I think these social trends are very similar. We're looking at the polarization around educational status in particular, and what does that do if there's a politics of identity and a politics of economics? So you get a four-sided politics. That plays out very differently in different political systems. So actually, it's a strength and weakness of proportional representation in continental Europe. It's quite easy to say, well, what we need here is a four to six party system. Let's have a national party on the right and a market party on the right. Let's have a sort of social democratic party and a, and a green party. And you can, you can do that so everyone can vote their heart. Uh, and then you've got to put governing coalitions together with those votes and everyone will hate the party that, that it's formed. And, you, you know, you see in Austria, you know, an attempt of a sort of young, modernising centre-right party to deal with a populist party in it, in it, and it falls apart. So proportional systems actually accommodate that rather well, but you still got to govern, and you end up with the sort of Dutch system where you end up with sort of ten-party politics on ten percent each. And and if you're if you're comfortable with coalitions, that's fine. If you have a majoritarian political culture like Britain or America, and so people are expecting a who wins and who loses, and we we tried a coalition, and uh, you know people liked coalitions less, and the, the people who played the coalition game, Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats, everyone just disliked them because compromise, they want to compromise in politics, stand by your principles and wins and lose. You end up with this four-party party, six-party politics, um, and it's incredibly difficult because you're only going to be able to govern if you can get across those across those divides. Actually, you've got to be the national right and the market right. You've got to be the culturally cosmopolitan left and the left behind left. And if you can't do that, you won't be a 40% party. I think what we underestimated over the last five or ten years, we all said the Labour Party is going to struggle with Hampstead and Halifax. How are they going to put that together? But the Conservative Party is trying to uh, line up Mayfair and Mansfield behind behind the same thing as well. And when you start to do a sort of a no-deal Brexit, when you're the party of the market and business and you're the party of the Brexit vote, that's just as difficult. So I think it's good to have a politics that actually makes you sweat quite hard to tell voters that you can do some of what they want, but you're going to have to talk to other voters as well. So that's an advantage of a majoritarian system. But what we saw in the British election is the appetite for compromise is disappearing and the appetite for polarisation is rising. Yeah, one of the features of first-past-the-post political systems um, is that these successful political parties end up forming internal coalitions within their own ranks. And one of the 
characteristics of the most recent European election results in the UK is that these internal party coalitions seem to be disintegrating. Um, and uh, uh, that's one of the reasons that both Labour and the Conservative Party uh, fared so badly. I mean, they, they really did fare astonishingly badly. Do you think that we are witnessing the disintegration of Britain's party political system? Or do you think these coalitions can reform and um, be resurrected post-Brexit? I think we don't know that, but we definitely don't know that because of the 2019 European elections in Britain. This was a proxy one-off vote about Europe and Brexit that we're, that we're not expecting to have and that we're not meant to have. And so, and so on both sides of that divide, people thought you vote your identity on the Remain leave question and the vote, the parties that are saying don't we have to bridge the divides etc are not the thing to vote for because it's an expressive vote, it's not really part of the same European elections. Now 17.2 million people came out and cast their votes and felt very strongly about the Brexit party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and were not attracted by what Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn were trying to do. There were 15 million people who sat at home having voted in the last general election and they'll vote in the next one. And they, I think, have a very different view of um, how important Brexit is than other people, because people who saw this as a sort of most important European elections ever, it's like another referendum, get all your friends to vote. People are like, oh, I'm not doing that, I'm bored, why is it happening on both sides? So those people aren't being heard, it's their own fault they sat on the sofa and watched Coronation Street when there was an election on, but there is a considerable distance, I think, between the intensity of the people who cast their votes and the intensity of the 15 million people who didn't, in terms of how bored they are of this Brexit polarisation. Now, if the, if the people who voted get what they say, those people are going to have to pick a side in a referendum at some point between Remain and No Deal, or they're going to have to have a general election between a No Deal Tory party and a Remain Labour party. But I think the party leaderships have both been trying to do this bridging, rather unsuccessfully, without managing to do it, and that their activists are not interested in it, because their activists both represent a quite a narrow spectrum of the voters that would be their winning coalition, and their activists like the party that can get 25 or 30 percent and actually lack the ability. And so the, the leaders, I think, are, are telling their party something quite interesting that their party members aren't listening to. Eric, I wanted to ask you, you have um, made the point that uh, national populist parties are not one and the same thing as ethno-nationalist parties, um, and that if you look at the voting blocs, for successful national populist parties in Europe, they aren't exclusively white. Um, they're they're predominantly white, but they're often multi-ethnic at the same time. I mean, if you look at some of the more explicitly ethno-nationalist parties and how they fared in these European elections, like UKIP in the United Kingdom, um, AFD in Germany, um, they didn't do particularly well. Okay, the Front National did do well, but the Front National feels to me more like a national populist party than a right-wing ethno-nationalist party. And I'm just interested in how you think identity politics is playing out in these elections. One other thing I noticed, in addition to the disappointing, not disappointing to me, but disappointing to them, performance of various ethno-nationalist parties across Europe, was the very poor performance of feminist parties. So the Women's Equality Party um, um, got fewer votes than the Animal Welfare Party in London, which is the only place it's contested. And in Sweden, we saw an 80% decline in support for the Feminist Party compared to 2014, and it lost its only member of the European Parliament. So 
cutting across this polarisation narrative is actually some evidence that identity politics seems to be on the way. Hmm, I mean, there's, there's a lot in that question. I would say, first of all, I wouldn't cut the cake quite as you do between the ethno-nationalist and the populist right parties in the sense that I actually think there's a lot of similarity between their voting bases in, in that, I mean, yes, clearly members of the ethnic majority are going to be overwhelmingly the voters for these parties, number one. I also don't think they're ethno-nationalist in the sense of, I mean, ethnic nationalism says that you must be a member of the dominant ethnic group to be considered a full member of the nation. And essentially they want to repatriate or have an exclusively, uh, you know, white ethno-national society. I don't think that's the policy that these parties are advancing. I mean, there are some at the fringes that perhaps the BNP, the British National Party, was an example of this, where they did talk about repatriation. But for the most part, I mean, maybe Baudet would be an exception in the Netherlands, who I think might be classified as ethno-nationalist. But for the most part, they are what I would call ethno-traditional nationalist. In other words, they are not, they would be willing to have somebody of any ethnic background be an equal member of the nation state, but what they're concerned about is to slow down the decline of the um, ethnic majority. So they're attached to the ethnic composition of the nation, but they're not exclusively defining membership with reference to ethnic criteria. I think that's a very important distinction, which I do make in my book, White Shift. And I think that this sense of ethno-traditionalism is predominantly held by members of ethnic majorities, but also can be held by members of minority groups. And so, for example, if you look at the ethnic minority UKIP vote the, or the minority Brexit vote, about 30%. The Hispanic and Asian Trump vote at about sort of 30% as well. And, and, and actually, I've looked at Hispanic and Asian Trump voters and their views on questions such as it's important for the United States to preserve and protect its white Christian or European Christian heritage. There, it would be about 55%, which would be similar to, to white Trump voters on that. So it's because they're attached to a particular ethnic picture of the nation, wanting to preserve that or at least slow down uh, its decline so that there's time to assimilate others into that picture. I think that is roughly the, the, uh, the profile. But of course, you've got extremists in all of these parties. Um, what I would say is that we are really at the beginning uh, demographically of a shift in Europe now, um, where right now ethnic minorities are maybe on the order of, of 10% of Western Europe, uh, not that is of non-European background in the main West European countries. Moving the clock ahead, you know, by 2050, Britain, which currently has a 6% Muslim share, Pew's medium range projection puts Britain on about 17% Muslim in 2050, Sweden on 20%, the Netherlands is even Belgium, for example. So this is the backdrop. We are at the beginning and not the end of this demographic transition or, or demographic shift, which will, I think, keep this issue relevant and will push politics in a more culturalist and less materialist direction. Now, of course, if we have a recession, depression, that'll change the conversation more towards economics as Brexit has, for example, focused the conversation on economics. But with this longer term structural demographic shift, I would expect these issues to gain, to become more prominent. That could also involve the green and liberal response to populism, but I think what we've seen here is going to continue or even deepen in the years ahead. I think you get very different populist parties in different European countries because of the type of country they're trying to appeal to, especially when they want to be in the mainstream. So if you're Marine Le Pen, you're always trying to embrace 
Nigel Farage and say we are modernising uh, what was the National Front of my father and we want to be like Nigel Farage. If you're Nigel Farage, you keep your distance from Marine Le Pen because being attached to the French National Front doesn't help you very much in Britain. And so your populist party actually becomes a really interesting indicator of your, your social norms and your prejudice norms and your race norms because they want to talk about the things you should be allowed to talk about that you're not allowed to talk about. But what they do and don't think is there is quite interesting. So the Brexit party is one of the most politically correct mainstream populist parties you'll ever find in the European Parliament. They will go with their 29 uh, MEPs and three of them are non-white and they will have the most non-white MEPs in the European Parliament, along with the other British parties, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens will all have non-white MEPs. Most of the European Christian Democrat parties won't because you haven't got that, you haven't got that norm. And so they are using uh, identity politics, which they're against, to actually establish their mainstream credentials. They put a, uh, a black gay man top of the list in Scotland, Louis Steadman Bryson at the launch, he said, you think we are racist and homophobic, but I am gay and I am black, and I am the Brexit party. And so they use, you know, this sort of uh, symbolism of identity politics to claim their mainstream norm. And what the populist party no longer wants to say, um, it isn't allowed to say, actually then tells you a question that's settled. Nigel Farage was running against David Cameron on gay marriage very strongly in 2014 and he was taking people out of the Conservative Party because they were upset about that. That issue was settled, the reform happened, we will never hear a peep again from the Brexit Party about gay marriage because the question is settled in Britain. If that question isn't settled in France, we will hear a lot about it from populist and mainstream parties. So I think, I think the parties are different because they reflect the norms of their society and they are, they are wanting to tweak the nose of the establishment but but within the boundaries of what keeps your mainstream credentials unless you reject all of that and you turn into a you know very extreme party but we've just lost you know we've just seen tommy robinson fail we've just seen ukip fail and it really is a credential for nigel farage with his i want to broader than ukip that the reason he left ukip behind was that jared batten didn't observe the boundary with tommy robinson and with the street movements of the far right and therefore if you're a brexit party voter that wasn't sure about UKIP, you can now say, well, Nigel Farage has done that. Other people who are more liberal will say, but he's appealing to authoritarianism in the way he talks about democracy, but he's just given you a really clear credential that he will police that boundary. So I think it's an interesting, self-enlightened, self-interest political strategy, actually, that Nigel Farage is rather more politically correct than we think. Okay. One of the interesting things, as you say, about the Brexit party is that it has been able to forge this um, multi-ethnic nationalistic, slightly right-of-centre political coalition. But it feels like that may only be possible because they are all united around being pro-Brexit, being pro-no-deal Brexit. Is, it, is that, do you think, do you think that that's a coalition that could be the way forward for centre-right political parties in Europe and in particular the Conservative Party? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we would be making a mistake if we confused the elite Brexiteer rhetoric with the sentiments of the base, right? So we know that ni roughly 90% of Brexit voters want reduced immigration compared to 40% of Remain voters. That's a 50-point gap, which is the same size gap as 
Democrat and Republican white voters in the U US. So we have an enormous gap on immigration. Immigration is by far and away the strongest predictor of a 2016 Brexit vote, and that is still absolutely the central issue, despite the talk of sovereignty, et cetera. When you do the uh, multivariate analysis, what really comes out is immigration, not uh, class or, or some of these other issues. Um, so I think we would be making a mistake to draw too sharp a distinction uh, between what's going on in Britain and what's going on in Europe. Uh, I think they are fundamentally motivated by similar concerns around you know, what I would call ethno-traditional nationalism and this concern about loss of, of, of uh, a way of life, culturally driven. I think, that, again, I would think that a strategy, yeah, I think the conservatives in this country are going to try and win back those voters. I mean, that is their number one priority, so they're going to try and move their tanks onto the Brexit Party's lawn, which initially will be done by, by having a hard Brexit candidate, perhaps. But I also think that we may have to think beyond Brexit. I know that's very hard to do right now, but what Brexit is doing, paradoxically, is it is placing economic concerns much higher up the agenda than they otherwise would be, right? And, and because people are worried, what's going to happen to the UK's economy if it crashes out? What's the future? Once this question is settled, we're going to be, I think, back to the kind of politics that existed prior to the Brexit vote, where uh, immigration was a, was a rising, very high issue. It's, it's dampened now, currently, again, because Brexit voters think that once we get Brexit, that issue will be solved, which it won't be. We know it won't be. Um, and secondly, because economic, the economy is on the agenda. If you actually look at survey data and an experiment that, that I, I've done with some colleagues at, at the LSE, the Brexit, uh, people who voted leave are willing to take economic pain uh, to, you know, to reduce migration. Um, in a way that many, there's a, about half of Remainers want less migration, but they're not willing to pay the economic price for it. Again, I think that shows you that the importance of these value-based issues, uh, which I can, I can only see that, I can't see that going away. Unless migration remains at a low level for a long time, the, this general demographic drift of Europe Plus, it's very hard to control migration for a whole host of reasons. Obligation, refugee obligations, family reunification, uh, business labor market demand. And if the parties of Western Europe are unable to deliver on reduced immigration, they've, gone the, they've talked the talk, right, in terms of reducing. So they have actually adopted the rhetoric. So they've gotten past the political correctness, which kept them caged in and not allowed an opening, by the way, for the populist right to come in. That political correctness has now has now started to give way. But if these parties are not able to also deliver, we saw to some extent in the Netherlands the emergence of Baudet was was partly because the the Rutte who had rhetorically taken over um, Wilders's rhetoric about um, Islam uh, was not able to deliver the reduced reductions in numbers. So that is going to be a, a bugbear of the centre parties. They can talk the rhetoric and win back the voters once, perhaps. As the Tories did in this country, uh, the tens of thousands of rhetoric, I mean, they were able to get UKIP voters back, but they weren't able to reduce numbers, uh, and that's sort of cost them. So this is the other aspect of this. I think the declining sense of immigration is for several is for several um, reasons. I think people do feel that they have the chance to have their say. So saying we're not even allowed to talk about immigration, are we, is, is, is less credible now. I think people have the expectation of controls um, at some point. I think other people who were, you know, sceptical Remainers have said, well, it wasn't worth all of this trouble, or there's more empathy as well to Europeans in Britain because they were statistics in the figures, but you now see and hear people are worried about whether they can stay. And there's a very strong view, there's a very strong view the day after the referendum 
referendum that people who are here need to be allowed to stay and that having control isn't that. And it's gone out of the newspapers to a very remarkable extent and sometimes that's ownership and editorial changes at the Daily Express and the Daily Mail. It's also an interest, I think, among political and media people who were leave to defend the decency of the leave voter. That of course there is a, uh, you know, a toxic fringe of racist voters, but they very much want to say control wasn't shutting the borders and that controlling immigration um, doesn't mean you're racist and that people of different ethnicities want to control immigration and make integration work too. And when they're saying that, they therefore have to say, therefore, students are great, skills are great, let's have everyone from the health service, let's have controls and use it pragmatically. Whether or not when people then make all of those choices, they end up selecting higher levels of immigration than they think they want to select. Does the fact of having a say about it reduce the frustration or do you start to say, I really want to get the numbers down? But there is something in the complexity of the question, what should we do now if you've actually got a choice that's there? If you then stay in and you say it's free movement, actually it matters the market, I think you will get more of a polarisation. But I think there's a very interesting point that, that immigration has gone from, can we talk about it and is it open or closed to, if you had control, what would you do? And that's just a much more pragmatic question for most people. One of the arguments I often have with overseas observers of British politics is that they see things like the success of UKIP in 2014, the uh, vote to leave in 2016, the success of the Brexit party in the most recent European elections as evidence that Britain is an increasingly xenophobic, racist society. But if you look at all the polling evidence, Britain is much less racist now than it was 25, 50 years ago. It's less racist than other European countries that we think of yeah. as more cosmopolitan mm -hmm. than the United Kingdom, uh, like France, for instance. I mean, how do you explain this apparent paradox that even though the British population is, by international standards, one of the least racist populations in the world, nonetheless, these right-of-centre populist parties and movements have fared better in the United Kingdom than elsewhere in Europe. Well, there's been a big shift in my lifetime across the generations on attitudes to, to race um, and racism over, over the long period, over 40 years and so on, because a society that was very homogenous, um, you know, had a fast level of uh, change in immigration, the Enoch Powell era, the Thatcher era, that it was uncomfortable with. But through that process, there was just a lot of contact in Britain. There was conflict and there was contact. And so overt racism lost its legitimacy and we've kept that. Now, what I think Eric is showing in his work is that change was also too fast for some people, especially if you were older, but it wasn't really a change you experienced if you were younger. So I think the generational and the educational polarisation about that is very strong. Now, I do think that older people with concerns about immigration are very concerned to stay inside the racism norms that evolved in Britain when we stopped throwing bananas and monkey chants for people at football matches because they experience that and they want to be able to talk about immigration and integration in ways that they think that, you know, the Guardian newspaper will jump on them and maybe their own kids will jump on them. So there is a bit of conflict about handling this change. I think, I think the UK, you know, has got different views about European identity, different views about free movement. Free movement is immigration, it's not European citizenship. But we have, I think, stronger race norms in Britain than in most of continental Europe. If you look in the European Parliament, half of the MEPs that are non-white there will be British, and most of the ethnic diversity in the European Parliament will leave when the British leave, because you're looking at the elite politics of 
the late 1980s or the early 1990s in British terms in societies that are just as diverse as Britain in the cases of France and Belgium. And so the Brussels, which is a sort of probably majority minority city, hosting these institutions which are 99% white. And if anybody is there um, as an official or as an MEP, they're probably coming in from London. It's quite an interesting contrast in a way with that perception of the British being xenophobic in a different way. Eric, to put this in the broader European context, one of the curiosities of the surge of anti-immigration parties is that we've been told now for quite some time that um, social conservatism is a waning force and social liberalism is on the rise. The somewheres are gradually dying out and the anywheres are taking over. And we see this with increasing urbanisation, increasing numbers of people going to university, the knowledge economy, and many people on the liberal side of these arguments think that history is on their side and they just have to sit this surge out and soon they'll start winning elections again. Um, uh, is the answer to this riddle that actually it's just that the people voting for these anti-immigration parties are for the most part not particularly well-educated, not university graduates, living in rural areas, not part of the booming financial services and knowledge sectors, but part of the dying parts of the economy. And this is just an ex- a sort of dying shout of rage <laughs> decline of their communities and their identities. Or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is more complicated. I mean, certainly if you look at continental Europe, uh, France, Austria, Italy, um, you can see that it's not the it's not the oldest that are supporting the populist right. It's sort of the, the middle part of the age spectrum. And it's always very hazardous to look at a snapshot survey taken in 2018 and look at the young people and say that's how they're going to be in 30, 40 years when they're, or 20 years when they're going to, when they're the median voter because of changes over the life cycle. We know in the study in this country, which has actually been longitudinal, where we can track people over a period of 30 years, that that roughly there's a a 20-point shift in the average person in the direction of voting for the Conservative Party over the lifetime from, say, 20 to age 60. Um, And I think it'll be very much the same here. If you look, Bobby Duffy at Ipsos Mori has, has looked a little bit at millennials and their views on immigration and has shown, has sort of argued that there's been a, a, a convergence. The older millennials are starting to converge with Generation X on these attitudinal issues. I think it's very different with uh, homosexuality, attitudes to divorce um, and, and singlehood and, and so on in religion. Those attitudes really were cohort shifts. And so the younger generation was less religious, um, was more accepting of homosexuality, and now that's actually become the norm in the society as older generations die off. I think that with certain attitudes, such as attitudes to the European Union, attitudes to immigration, they don't have the same uh, generational structure. I, I would say that, you know, so for example, if you look at attitudes to the EU, the peak favorability was about 1990, 91, something like that. It's been going in the other direction since. Similarly, we haven't seen the same liberalization on attitudes to immigration. So I'm very skeptical of the cohort replacement hypothesis with regard to immigration. I think this issue will be with us. And when the young people of today are the median voter, they will be looking back at the country they knew when, it, when they were 20. And I think that is really what shapes a lot of this kind of 
nostalgia, my country was better in the past, that kind of view is the best correlate of immigration attitudes. But I think race rather than immigration are more like attitudes to gender and homosexuality because I think what felt normal to you when you were 18 years old and you were at school and you were a student does stick with you because what all European societies are grappling with is if somebody comes to this country from India or Pakistan or from Africa and they take out a passport and then they have children here. Are those children just as British, just as Swedish, just as German as the other people who are British, German, Swedish and so on? And some countries that thought they would be quite good at that, like Sweden, have found it more struggling than they thought. I think the British identity opened up in that way over this generation and we will keep that and then people of all of those backgrounds will say but we should worry about immigration and integration and how to get that right and you'll hear that from black and asian britons as well as from white britons i mean i do think i'm not quite as optimistic in the, in the sense i think you're right about the attitudes to you know becoming much more tolerant on race my child marrying a black person or having a black boss etc um but i think it's the attitudes to outgroups is not the same as attitudes to your own group, right? So what we have, say, in the U.S. case is growing white identification at the same time as we have falling prejudice and, and opposition to interracial marriage. These two trends moving in opposite directions. Because as a group, as a group becomes smaller, it becomes more aware of itself. Attachment to the group becomes more important even as it's growing more tolerant of, of, of outgroups. So I think we could, I could well imagine continental Europe becoming more tolerant of particularly racial outgroups. There's a, there's a sort of issue with Islam and the overlap between, say, religious difference and race in continental Europe is greater than it is here, where you have a lot of non-Muslim, non-whites, like Afro-Caribbeans, uh, who, are, who are very assimilated. Or in the Netherlands, Again, also the Caribbeans are very assimilated, uh, but it's the kind of overlap with Islam and the difference that that brings as well. Which and is here we, we get to one of, I think, the central themes of um, Eric's research as well, because the question right. is, what identities does the majority want? Because there was a view, and it was particularly common on the liberal left, which is that you, when minorities join your society, you pay attention to their identity because they need to be protected. We should learn about different faiths, and we need to help them uh, integrate into the majority of the, the overall society as well. But the majority is fine because the majority knew what it want, and that, that was their blindness then to the, actually all of this change is discombobulating to the majority. If the majority thinks, well, everybody gets to have their, their ethnic group, well, their faith group I want mine let's talk about what white people should get in this city if you have New York politics or London politics organized like that it's pretty rational to do that if you don't want to do that I think this is a possible answer to populism you've got to find an identity for the majority let's all be proud to be British let's be proud to be English too let's be proud to be Scottish that, that lets the minority integrate into it and share it with the majority and then it's a question really of politics and fairness as to whether the majority thought you did that, or whether the majority thinks without having an ethnic political identity of its own, it will never get a fair slice of the cake. Do you think that one solution to that particular conundrum is liberal ethno-nationalism, represented by parties like the SNP and Plaid Cymru? I would say, I would say liberal civic patriotism, 
can get a long way in bridging these divides. It can't get to all of the groups, but it can get quite a long way because in terms of like, if, if your society feels like it's changing and you'll feel you won't share anything with the people who are incomers, if the incomers decide to, you know, be proud of their identity and citizenship and they go through citizenship ceremonies where there's an oath to the queen, it's surprising to you if, if, if ethnic and faith minorities turn out to be interested in remembrance that you think is shapes your society over uh, over a century and then and then they start saying but but our ancestors were part of this why wouldn't we share it it's surprising and it's reassuring if the majority lets minorities be part of um saint george's day because we invite everyone to the party it's surprising to minorities who think that the people who want to be proud to be english want to be proud of an england before they were here if you can make that work in southampton and birmingham where you have saint george's day and actually it works across the groups they're surprising but you do a lot of this integration i think in the identities that mattered to the majority, as well as doing it around sort of food festivals and, and multiculturalism festivals that matter to minorities, which is what we've mostly done. Yeah. Well, can I ask, Eric, we think of this as a solution to um, increasing polarisation, ethno-nationalism, identity politics in Europe, that if we could generate, um, if we could stimulate uh, national identities, which are multi-ethnic, patriotic, coalesce around various national symbols um, and a, a sort of shared set of, of values that, that supersede partisan conflicts, that that's the solution. But that seems to be what America has already, um, a very strong sense of belonging, very patriotic population, absolute uh, sacred worship of symbols and values and documents, and it doesn't seem to be stopping uh, no. this, this uh, fracture uh, along ethnic uh, lines within America. Right, right, and I, I think this is maybe where we might, I might have some differences with Sundar, is I don't actually think civic nationalism, which we've been talking about for 20 years, is the solution here, okay? And the reason I'm saying that is, civic nationalism relied to some extent implicitly on the existence of a self-confident ethnic majority, and it relied also on certain challenges to the polity. It could be the Cold War, it could be a world war. It could be something, some challenge that would make that salient to people, not just once a year when there's a football competition, but actually in, in day in, day out. Um, those pressures aren't there, and I think that a sort of values-based civic nationalism is not gonna be enough to deal with the kinds of cleavages we're talking about, because you you have a demo, ethno-demographic shifts, which are making, ethnicity salient, not the political boundaries salient. And so how are you going to address the anxiety of this ethnic majority that's declining? Incidentally, I'd also add that the content of the nation is largely being denuded of that sort of ethnic majority content in a way, which I think is, is fair because I think you don't want to privilege one group necessarily in the national imaginary. So you're, you're kind of denuding the ethnic content out of the national symbolic pantheon and the ethnic majority is being declined or is declining and is being told it shouldn't have an identity. So I really don't see any other way out of this other than having a moderate form of ethnic majority identity being permitted. However, the national identity, I think, needs to be somewhat modular. There needs to be a sort of slightly different version of, of say, British or American national identity, depending on your political or ethnic way, so that everyone has a different way of connecting to the nation. But fundamentally, I think there has to be an accommodation on the immigration question, and, and an understanding that this is something, I mean, in a way it is, I think, driven by conservative members of ethnic majorities 
for the most, but not entirely. There's also ethnic minorities who are attached to the nation as it is. Until we are honest about dealing with that question, I think we're going to have problems. I don't think the values-based civic national approach on its own is going to be enough to deal with this. There has to be an acknowledgement of, an, of a, sort of an accommodation, a social contract between majorities, minorities, between somewheres and anywheres that we're going to move at a pace we're all comfortable with. And some future for ethnic majorities, I argue in the book that through assimilation and admixture of uh, other groups through voluntary intermarriage, that's a way in which ethnic majorities can see their future as one of not just being declined the bad old past, but actually having a future. I think that reassurance is going to be necessary, and some experimental work I've done shows that that does take the edge off some of their fears uh, and support for you know, hard forms of populism. So I, I don't think we're going to be able to get out of having that conversation just by talking about value-based and political-based forms of belonging. Do we see any lessons in the European elections for the forthcoming US presidential election? The obvious one I can think of, Sunder, is that the success of left-of-centre parties uh, in Europe, particularly Sweden, indicate that if you're going to win back power from populist right-of-centre governments, the way to do it is to park your tanks on their lawn and embrace some pretty tough immigration policies and pro-ethnic integration policies. Uh, that's worked in Sweden. It doesn't look as though the Democrats are going to do that. In fact, it looks as though they're going to go in the opposite direction. Um, but if there is a lesson there, is that the only lesson, do you think? I think, I think it's hard to get lessons. I think the European elections are a midterm election. I think the midterm elections themselves in America are very much a, an election where you polarise and you mobilise and you say, they're going to vote, are you going to vote, vote for us? And that, and that you get to the general election. And again, you're back to the question of, you know, if your side isn't excited enough about what you're offering, you're not at the races. So you want to mobilise, but actually you've got to try and get a majority. It's unlucky for the Democrats that, you know, Donald Trump got less votes than Hillary Clinton, but he got the votes in the right places and that, and that, and that he's great at polarising. And so I think one thing that's happened with Trump and the Democrats, and I think we might see it here with Brexit and Remain, even though it's a different scenario, is that a lot of people on the Liberal side, if Hillary Clinton had just squeaked in by the skin of her nose, if Remain had got 51%, people would be saying, well, that was a tough thing, wasn't it? We need to build bridges, we need to reassure, we need to reach out, we never want to be that close again to such a polarised debate. It's incredibly hard after they lost to say that, as they think the opposite. They think polarising isn't doing them any harm, is it? Let's go at them from our position. And it's sort of, it's not rational in a way if you're running your electoral strategy, but you need to combine, you know, the passion with the breadth and the reach. And it's very hard, it's very hard to do it. So if you, you know, if you run on, you know, Donald Trump's probably got some things right, you probably leave a lot of votes mm. at home. But, but I think you're just, I think, you know, they've been doing it for four, five, six elections now in America. It's absolutely split down the middle and it's just a, a sort of census to mobilise your people against their people. I do think if we don't fix Brexit, even though it's a different thing, we might get to that get to that point where everyone says, you know, you're foolish if you try to, uh, you know, bridge divides and so on. Just it's a census. Just get your get your team out. If we had another referendum uh, on Brexit, nobody would try and talk to Schoolgate Mum on the television. They'd just be running completely separate mobilisation races to get the turnout out. I think that's a really um, unattractive form of democratic policy, democracy as a sort of demographic turnout race, not an argument at all. 
Yeah, I mean, I would, one thing I'd say is, I mean, it does look like the Democrats, I mean, if you look at the polling on leaders, it does look like the Democrats are not going to go for a very woke type of candidate, um, you know, like a Gillibrand or something. So, so this, if it's a Biden or a Sanders, then that's a relatively strong hand, I would say, for the Democrats in terms of um, winning back some of the voters, perhaps, that went to Trump. So it doesn't look, at least the Democrats don't look to be playing the identity politics game. And that's probably a, a good thing, perhaps, for, for combating polarization. Um, but I think there is obviously this, even if you look at the US, and it's been polarizing for decades, and part of that is is ethnic sorting into different parties. Um, but but also it's been there's been a strong ideological push, I'd say, um, from from activists in this direction. Now they're talking about reparations. That's going to be a, some people think that um, you know it will no longer at some point be possible to be a democratic candidate without endorsing reparations. Which is a, already, yeah, but I mean. The fact that Biden and Sanders are, are sort of polling at the top would, would at least be an encouraging sign that, that that may not happen. And interestingly, Hillary Clinton, like Tony Blair, has they've both written that, in, in essence, that Western governments have to get a control over immigration. And you can't talk about abolishing your border control agency, as some Democrats want to abolish ICE, that this is just not, uh, you, you actually have to be serious about border control. So, I mean, I think there is a realization in quarters of the Democratic Party that they cannot have this open borders approach and that Trump is going to take them to the cleaners on that. And so I think they are becoming sensible. The question is whether they can see off the challenge of the more kind of activist woke section of the party. And so far, indications are positive in that regard. There's a, there's a fascinating research that done by the organization More in Common on the sort of psychology of all of this uh, in America. And they, you know, there's a very large, what they call an exhausted majority that, that isn't enjoying this at all and wants to find a way out of it. And yet that progressive activist base, and you've got a primary-based system, and you've got political activism, is very, very strong. And actually, look over on the Republican side, and it's a similar thing. So there's an investment and an enjoyment, I think, by political activists of the polarization of the sort of Fox News versus the Twitterati and that their own their own voters on the Republican side and Democrats side wish it wasn't happening and yet they will have to go and vote for for their for their tribe. So I think I think it's quite hard actually right now and this is a challenge for us in Britain as well. If you're a member of the exhausted majority, how do you not get co-opted into sort of let's turn elections into censuses in the culture war? Because the forces that can call it off seem to be very weak. Mm. Okay, well, Sunda, Eric, thank you very much. Thanks very much. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. 